Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In previous episodes of this podcast, I've made the case that Jesus and Matthew wages a campaign of healing which empowers the people reverses the effects of imperial domination, and crosses boundaries to create solidarity. In this episode, we will see Jesus attempt another boundary crossing, a foray into new geographical territory, a region on the other side. He will take his campaign of healing there, but will encounter demonic resistance. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 18, of Bible study, parody, and subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin by reading Matthew 8, 18-22. Now when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. This passage begins with Jesus seeing great crowds and making a decision to go to the other side. While the popular interpretation is that Jesus is tired and trying to escape the crowds, I want to suggest another possibility, that he is emboldened by the size of the crowds and decides to make an aggressive move, taking his campaign to the other side. You see, the other side is Gentile territory, and the crowds in Matthew not only follow Jesus, but to a limited extent, they also protect him and John the baptizer from the authorities. We will see later that Herod hesitates to kill John because of the crowds and that the authorities in Jerusalem hesitate to arrest Jesus because of the crowds. All the same word in Greek, although modern English translations tend to use different English words. The crowds represent, at some level, Jesus' political power and success. So I think that seeing the great crowds indicates to Jesus his organizing success and prompts him to invade, as it were, new territory. Gentile territory on the other side. I use the language of invasion, military language, because as will become clearer in the story, Jesus' campaign is a sort of parody of military campaigns, a campaign of healing instead of killing. So Jesus makes a decision to invade new territory. But who will go with him? He can't take everyone with him, 
These are huge crowds. So we get a little bit of a weeding process. Only those truly committed to the cause will get to go on what we might call a special forces mission to the other side. First, a scribe wants to go. This is sort of ironic because, as I've explained in previous episodes of this podcast series, the author of this gospel is obviously a scribe. In the community that produced the Gospel of Matthew in the late first century, some scribes have defected to join the movement. Well, Jesus warns this scribe that following him at this point will mean joining a homeless, wandering band of social revolutionaries. They've had a brief stop at the house of Peter's family, but they don't know where they will sleep tomorrow or for many nights to come. This mission is not the sort that someone from the upper classes, such as a scribe, will find easy or natural. Jesus here refers to himself for the first time as the Son of Man. I will say more about that later, but for now, we should note that the Son of Man, as it is used in Matthew, is the title of a figure from the book of Daniel that Jesus applies to himself. The figure in Daniel is a collective image of the people of Israel. It is a collective image of the people of Israel as they overcome the empires that have oppressed them. I'll get into this more later in the series. But possibly the reason that Jesus first uses this title here is that he is about to venture into territory that is not only Gentile, but also a locus of Roman power. We have already seen in previous episodes that Jesus embodies his people. Here he embodies his people in opposing the empire, taking on the anti-imperial collective title for Israel, the Son of Man. I'll talk more about the Roman power on the other side once we get there with Jesus, but right now let's look at the second person asking to follow Jesus. Matthew calls this person simply another disciple. His request is to be allowed to bury his father first. Jesus' reply, let the dead bury their own dead, seems kind of cold, but it may be part of Matthew's polemic against the power of the established fathers of the society. The father referred to here may or may not be the person's biological father, but he is the head of a household, which was the fundamental political unit of the empire. The empire was constructed through a pyramid of households, each headed by a father, going all the way up to the Roman emperor, who was the father of the so-called House of Rome, which included not only Rome, but also all the subjugated lands of the empire. Jesus' rejection of the disciples' request to first bury his father may be a refusal to accommodate someone's felt need to participate in giving honor to a household father, and by extension, the whole patriarchal hierarchy of the empire. Later in the story, in chapter 23, Jesus will say, call no one on earth father. Furthermore, there is some evidence that burial may have been considered an extravagance by social radicals in the ancient world. At least one ancient writer has a cynic rejecting it, 
saying that he would rather his body be eaten by dogs and birds so that it can be of service to some living creatures. At any rate, anything but a very simple burial would have been beyond the means of most peasants. So Jesus' responses to the two men asking to follow him seem to have overtones of opposition to the empire and rejection of economic and social privilege. The themes of empire become stronger as we proceed in the next two passages. Let's read the next five verses, Matthew 8, 23-27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, the body of water that Jesus and his disciples are crossing is the Sea of Galilee. I've mentioned this before. The funny thing about the Sea of Galilee is that it is actually a freshwater lake. In fact, only in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John is this body of water referred to as a sea. In the Gospel of Luke and everywhere else in the ancient literature, it is called a lake. Matthew, as well as Mark and John, seem to call this body of water a sea for the symbolic and mythic power of that image. You see, in ancient Israelite apocalyptic texts, the sea is the place where empires come from. The book of Daniel, from which the title Son of Man comes, which Jesus has just for the first time used for himself here, the book of Daniel depicts four beasts rising out of the sea. Daniel goes on to tell us that those four beasts represent four empires that have ruled over and oppressed Israel. The book of Revelation, roughly contemporary with Matthew, also depicts a beast rising out of the sea. That beast represents the Roman Empire. The beast in Revelation, in fact, is a composite image of the four beasts in Daniel. So all these texts, Matthew, Revelation, and Daniel, are interacting with each other. In Daniel, the four beasts rise out of a stormy sea, like the one in our text here in Matthew. I think one reason these ancient Israelite apocalyptic writers imagined these brutal empires rising out of the sea was that the recent empires that had dominated Israel did, in fact, come from across the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. The Greek empires and the more recent Roman Empire came from across the Mediterranean Sea. Additionally, the Roman Empire was more or less an empire of the sea, an empire that encircled the Mediterranean Sea. And Roman propaganda often touted Caesar's dominion over the sea. So Jesus and his disciples are crossing over to the other side, over a stormy sea, that's sea in quotation marks, of course. The other side is Gentile territory. We've seen that Jesus' campaign of healing reconciles people, 
creating solidarity across ethnic and other types of boundaries. This mission is another attempt at crossing a boundary, but the winds of the empire are against them. The waves of the imperial sea threaten to swamp the boat. Yet Jesus almost sleeps through the whole ordeal. We modern Western readers might just assume that Matthew includes this detail merely to convey Jesus' confidence, his lack of fear. But the ancient Jewish audience would have recognized also a literary motif. There is another figure in ancient Israelite literature who also sleeps on a boat during a stormy sea. That figure is Jonah. Jonah seems to be an important figure for Matthew. Matthew will explicitly have Jesus cite the Jonah story twice later in this gospel. But here, Matthew alludes to it through parallel imagery. The story of Jonah is a story of an Israelite prophet who, though reluctant at first, eventually conquers a brutal empire nonviolently through his prophetic message, through his words. Jonah crosses the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and ends up in Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is not across the sea from where Jonah starts. It's actually in the opposite direction. So it is a circuitous route in a longer story, but he does cross a sea, sleep during a storm, has to be woken up by others, and ends up in the capital of the dominant brutal empire of his time, an empire that brutally oppressed his people. He marches into the city and conquers it, so to speak, with a simple call to repentance. In our story in Matthew, Jesus and his disciples cross a sea. They encounter a storm. Jesus is sleeping through it and has to be woken up. And they end up in a place that, as we will see, seems to be a locus of Roman imperial power. Jesus demonstrates power over the sea. Symbolically, he is demonstrating power over the empire, which he will do again when he reaches the other side. Again, Jesus displaces Caesar, this time as ruler over the sea. Then we finally get to the other side. Let's read the next seven verses. When he came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demoniacs came out of the tombs to meet him. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of swine was feeding at some distance from them. The demons begged him, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. He said to them, Go. So they came out and entered the swine, and suddenly the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. The swine herds ran off, and on going into the town, they told the whole story about what had happened to the demoniacs. Then the whole town came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their neighborhood. So the other side is revealed to be the region of the Gadarenes. This was in a larger area known as the Decapolis, a Greek word which means the Ten Cities. Although there were Jews in the area, these cities were centers of Greek and Roman culture, 
and most importantly, Roman power. New Testament scholar Warren Carter describes the region as one in which Roman presence was evident in trade, buildings, settled veterans, and troops. Jesus encounters two demoniacs. As I have described in previous episodes, Satan was understood in Jewish resistance literature of that time as the spirit behind the Roman Empire. Demons were extensions of Satan's power, part of his army. So what Jesus encounters here is a spiritual manifestation of Roman power. In the version of this story found in the Gospel of Mark, the demons even identify themselves with the name Legion, a Roman military term. The demons immediately recognize Jesus as Son of God. So far, the only characters in this story to address Jesus with this title are Satan in chapter 4 and now these demons. The reason that the title Son of God is so important to Satan and his demons is that according to Roman propaganda, it is the title of the Roman Emperor. This title for Caesar was printed on coins that circulated throughout the empire. But the demons are forced to recognize that Jesus, rather than Caesar, is Son of God. The demons negotiate to be cast into a herd of pigs. Pigs, of course, constitute an obvious Gentile symbol in this story, since pigs are considered unclean by Jews. But the pigs symbolize more than mere Gentiles. Large herds of pigs, like the one in this story, were a food source for Roman troops. In fact, a pig was the symbol of the 10th Roman legion, which was stationed in Syria, where Matthew was likely written, and which played a major role in the siege of Jerusalem in the year 70, when Israel was virtually destroyed by Rome. Pigs were used in Roman sacrifices, and when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, before burning down the temple, they sacrificed a pig's head on one of the altars. Rabbinic literature would later use the pig as a symbol for Rome. So the demons, a manifestation of Roman power, are sent into the pigs, another symbol for the Roman occupation, and the pigs run down the embankment and drown in the sea. The sea, the place where the empires come from, is now the place where the empire goes to die. Again, Matthew gives us powerful imagery of Jesus triumphing over the empire. The people of the region then beg Jesus to leave. This region, economically dependent on Roman troops and socially intertwined with them, cannot abide this disruption, this economic loss of the herd of pigs. And one can't help but perceive in the pleading of the people for Jesus to leave the modern psychological insight that dysfunctional communities like their demons. This special forces mission to the other side has limited success due to demonic resistance. Jesus has prevailed against the winds of the empire on the stormy sea and against the demons of the empire. But the final decision lies with the people. My name is Bert Newton. 
The music for this podcast is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please go to our Facebook page and leave comments. This has been episode 18 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you.